Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. So this all started from a post I saw on a Twitter handle that I'll never forget. It said, today is the anniversary of the day Muhammad Ali saved a guy from committing suicide. Ali did what I thought, hoping that I'd be prevented from spiraling into some sort of rabbit hole. I did a quick Google search. I couldn't believe what I was reading. Muhammad Ali, an athlete who is bigger than any sports star in history, saved a Vietnam vet from suicide. A guy threatening from a Los Angeles office building that he would plummet nine floors to his death. But the twist during my rogue investigation, which is now in its third year, has gone from being an awesome, straightforward story to a strange and convoluted one involving a long list of very different characters. Ronald Reagan as a governor and then president, a reputable LAPD sergeant looking for missing records, and a tabloid magazine that claimed Bigfoot wasn't just real, but keeping a lumberjack as a love slave. This is a story that has left me far more curious than when I even first read that tweet, and the belief that one of six things happened. One, Ali saved a man from committing suicide. Two, Ali broke into national news coverage during a presidential inauguration. Three, Ali wanted to prove to the world that he was still the greatest. Four, Ali was determined to showcase the shortcomings of the Vietnam War. Five, all the above, or six, none of the above. So what really happened? That is what I want to find out. My name is Andrew Jenks, and this is What Really Happened, where I challenge accepted narratives around key events involving legendary figures. This week's episode is about the greatest of all time, Muhammad Ali, and the day he talked a guy out of committing suicide. Unless, of course, the champ created a new story that we all fell for. Until now. It was about three and a half years ago on a cold evening in New York City. I saw a tweet that said, anniversary of the day Ali saves guy from suicide. That was it. So I've directed a couple of ESPN documentaries. I'd like to think I've heard of many of the legendary sports stories, but this, this I hadn't heard of. I immediately reminded myself that it was Twitter. Maybe it was a fake tweet, fake news, or just somebody who had some interest in expanding unnecessarily the legend of the great Muhammad Ali. Regardless, I had to know more about the story, so I took to Google and searched, Ali saves guy from suicide. Endless articles came up, Slate, Daily News, Fox Sports, Los Angeles Times, New York Times, you name it. I could search Google's 15th page and still see articles coming up. And the story was simple. It was 1981, Los Angeles, on a ninth floor window ledge. A man, Joseph, was having Vietnam flashbacks and threatening to jump. 
For almost three hours, police, a psychiatrist, and even a minister tried to talk him down and had no success. Hundreds of people watched from below. In a twisted, disturbing sign of humans, I don't know, needing to get some form of therapy, it's reported that the crowd below was yelling for Joe to jump. Jump, jump, jump. Bruce Haggerty, an LAPD officer who was there that day, said, quote, I couldn't believe it. I've been in this business for 10 years, and I've never seen such a bloodthirsty crowd. In that bloodthirsty crowd, it just so happens there is a man named Howard Bingham. Howard was good friends with Muhammad Ali, and also his photographer. They had traveled the world together. He knew the champ was in L.A., and so Howard found a phone and called Ali. Four minutes later, Ali, with his driver in the front, rolled up in his Rolls Royce. Ali asked to go up the nine floors and speak with Joseph. The champ was a civil rights activist, perhaps the most famous person in the world at the time, and a poet in his own right. If anyone could talk the man down, it was Ali. Police were hesitant, but they weren't getting anywhere. Joseph was only getting angrier, and so they let Ali up. After multiple people tried for several hours to get Joe to come down, Ali got him off the ledge in less than 30 minutes. Ali put his arm around Joe, brought him inside, and the two walked out of the building together. Ali said that he wanted Joe to go with him, but the LAPD said that they needed to book Joe at the local jail, take him to a psychiatric ward, or a VA hospital. After all, this man was a war veteran. Ali asked if at the very least he could drive the man to wherever he needed to be checked out. The police said this was okay so long as an officer was in the car also. So if you can imagine this, because I still can't, Joe, who only minutes ago was on the verge of death, Ali, a former heavyweight champ, a surely shocked LAPD officer, and of course Ali's driver, take off in his Rolls Royce. The next evening, for nearly two minutes, the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite covered this incredible story. Former heavyweight champions slip out of the news as easily as ex-presidents, but Muhammad Ali was never your garden variety champion of all the world. Yesterday in Los Angeles, he responded like a superhero when a distraught man threatened suicide. Cronkite put it the right way. Ali did respond like a superhero. And that's because he was one. While working on this project, I was reminded time and time again at every turn that I wasn't just talking about a sports icon. Ali is, by any measure, one of the most loved and revered people in the history of the world. One of the many reasons why I've been inspired by Muhammad Ali over the years since I was a little boy. This is Dwayne The Rock Johnson, a.k.a. the biggest movie star in the world talking. I felt like he had a discipline and a dedication to his craft uh, that was at that time very unparalleled. And he also did it with a cool swag. He had a really cool factor to him. Johnson was so inspired by Ali that when Johnson was in the WWE, he started calling himself the people's champion, Ali's famous moniker. When Johnson asked Ali if it was okay to use the nickname out of reverence and heard back that Ali had approved, how did the 6'5", 260-pound movie star react? I might have cried. Manly tears, of course. When Ali was being awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom at the White House, then-President George W. Bush remarked, Only a few athletes are ever known as the greatest in their sport or in their time. But when you say the greatest of all time is in the room... Everyone knows who you mean. It's quite a claim to make. But as Muhammad Ali once said, it's not bragging if you can back it up. (laughs) 
President Bush continued. Across the world, billions of people know Muhammad Ali is a brave, compassionate, and charming man. And the American people are proud to call Muhammad Ali one of our own. So now, did you hear what the former president just said? Billions of people around the world knew Muhammad Ali, and that's not an exaggeration. One of the very few in world history that attained this level of iconic status. But there were at least a few that weren't in love with Ali, specifically during the Vietnam era, when many considered him a draft dodger as he refused to serve overseas, something that he was outspoken about. If I'm gonna die, I'll die now, right here fighting you. If I'm gonna die, you my enemy. My enemy is the white people, not Viet Congs or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I'm on freedom. You my opposer when I'm on justice. You my opposer when I'm on equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. Ali refused to enter the draft, which violated the Selective Service Act, and thus he was stripped of his passport and lost his boxing license in every state. From 25 to 28 years old, he wasn't allowed to professionally box. The greatest of all time somehow never boxed when perhaps he was in fact at his greatest. One of those people not having it with Ali was the governor of California at the time and future president, Ronald Reagan, declaring, We're at war with the most dangerous enemy that has ever faced mankind in his long climb from the swamp to the stars. And it's been said if we lose that war and in so doing lose this way of freedom of ours, history will record with the greatest astonishment that those who had the most to lose did the least to prevent its happening. In 1965, Reagan remarked, quote, we should declare war on North Vietnam. We could pave the whole country and put parking strips on it and be home by Christmas. Unfortunately for Reagan, Ali didn't celebrate Christmas, and unfortunately for all involved, Vietnam wasn't some easy ride through the countryside. By 1970, the political winds were shifting, and so Ali and his agent were desperately looking for a state that would allow Muhammad to make his grand return. It had been over three years. But many states were still turning down Ali as he was still waiting for the Supreme Court decision to overturn his conviction. Finally, the state of California agreed. It was on. Ali versus heavyweight Jerry Corey. The stakes couldn't be higher, said Dave Hannigan, author of Drama in the Bahamas, Muhammad Ali's last fight. Well, the first fight with Jerry Corey is one of the most important fights in Ali's career. This is his comeback. Everything is riding on this. Obviously, he's a better fighter than Jerry Quarry. He would be expected to beat Jerry Quarry. But after the time off, the enforced time off, uh, you know, this is a risky fight. There is a lot riding on this. And the fight is also significant in terms of the wider racial picture. Ali is preparing for the fight in Miami. Just before he's about to leave Miami, uh, he's in his hotel hanging out with his sparring partners. Uh, there's a knock on the door, and there's two white boxes are delivered for Muhammad Ali. Uh, he goes, or he, actually it's Al Blue Lewis, one of his sparring partners, goes to um, goes to the door and sort of comes back with the boxes, and uh, he makes a joke about, oh, somebody's delivered cake. And suddenly they notice these boxes have blood seeping from them. And in the box, in the two boxes contain the head and the torso of a chihuahua dog, a black chihuahua, which they decapitated and boxed. And it came with a Confederate flag and a message. We know how to handle black draft dodging dogs. This was way, way more than a boxing match. 
What Ali meant to the African-American community can't be overemphasized. When running for Senate, President Barack Obama kept a famous photo of Ali above his desk, a fight in which Ali said afterwards, I shock the world. I was a big underdog when I was running for the U.S. Senate. Nobody expected me to win. And uh, every day when I was out there campaigning or making calls and people would say, uh, what's your name again? How do you pronounce that? Barack Obama? You know, I could come back to my office and uh, see the champ and remember, he shocked the world and maybe I could too. You know, I grew up watching him. Uh, I grew up uh, having my identity shaped by what he accomplished. The former president expressing what Ali meant to him and African-Americans is why Hannigan says that... The fight was very much a coming out party for black America. Here was a man who had suffered an injustice or was certainly battling an injustice. And now this was his chance to come back. However, before getting the official sign-off, something strange happened. California called the fight off. The governor had stepped in. The governor was a former actor and future president, Ronald Reagan. Quote, Forget it, he said. That draft dodger will never fight in my state. Suddenly, the fight location was changed. Ali was forced to take his grand comeback to Georgia. He knocked Corey out in three rounds. Years later, Reagan was running for president, and like any candidate, he was looking for celebrity support. Reagan wanted Ali, the ultimate celebrity, and he wanted him badly. Reagan courted him, even asking Ali to patch things up. He told Ali's promoter, Harold Conrad, quote, he's marvelous, that Ali. But Ali wouldn't have it. During the 1980 presidential campaign, he rejected Reagan's attempts to get his support and instead endorsed Democratic candidate Jimmy Carter for president, even leading a group called Athletes for Carter. So why does any of this matter? Well, it didn't. It just sat there in my notes at first until I was re-watching that Cronkite broadcast and listened a bit closer. Former heavyweight champions slip out of the news as easily as ex-presidents. I hit pause right there. Why did Cronkite say that? What about ex-presidents did this have to do with anything? I looked up the date it aired. It turns out Ali went up those nine floors to talk Joseph off the ledge on January 19th, 1981. The next day, on the 20th, was the day Ronald Reagan would be inaugurated president. Unlike the 24-7 news cycle these days, if Ali wanted something reported, he wouldn't do it on the same day to get it trending on Twitter. He'd have to do it the day before. And there wasn't a more watched news program at the time than the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And when I say most watched, I'm not talking a few million. Cronkite's nightly show averaged 28 million viewers a night, the most watched news program of its time. Was Ali trying to break into the news coverage of Reagan's inauguration? Was it payback? Surely the world champ saving a guy from committing suicide would get media attention even on the same night Cronkite was reporting about America's new president. Well, if that was Ali's goal, it sure did work. Now, at points, I was convinced this was his goal and that it was brilliant. But as I read more and more about Ali, it just it didn't seem like his character. He didn't seem like a guy that would seek retribution for retribution's sake. But I will also say that of all of the days for this to happen, it seems awfully fortuitous for it to land on the day before a president is inaugurated. And really, 
a president who is responsible for delaying Ali's most important fight to date. Regardless, something was still not sitting right. So I kept reading, obsessively. And as I was reading and rereading many of the reports, I realized something strange. Most of these articles stuck to the very broad strokes. It was 1981, Los Angeles, Ninth Floor, Ali rolling up in a Rolls Royce, but nearly none, none of these articles had any more detail on what happened that day or the aftermath. In fact, as I looked closer, I realized that many of the articles seemed reworded regurgitations of each other. In some ways, this made sense. Ali saves a guy from suicide, read below. It's an awesome headline and perfect clickbait. It got me. But where was the first article that many of these articles were getting their information from? When looking closely, it seemed like most of the recent information is taken from the Weekly World News, a tabloid magazine on a good day. The Weekly Magazine, which went out of business in 2007, had some groundbreaking journalism. They were the first to report that gay aliens were found in a UFO wreck, broke the story that a 3,000-year-old mummy was pregnant, and had the first pictures of a three-breasted woman and a three-armed man having a child that had three legs. Was the Weekly World News the first publication to report this Ali story? It couldn't be possible. Was this the source? Why hadn't any of the major papers reported about a story that seemed ripe for the headlines? Even if they had missed the story, they surely heard it from Walter Cronkite himself on the day after. I did, very recently, find an apparent LA Times article that turned up in the archives these last few months, but even so, how is it that the LA Times and the Weekly World News seem to be the only two national publications that picked up this story in its immediate aftermath? I kept looking closer at every element of this story that I could get my hands on. It wasn't as if there wasn't a photograph to use alongside the article that could bring the story to life. In fact, there were plenty. And they were incredible shots. Actually, it was hard to believe how the pictures perfectly captured Ali looking out of the window to see Joseph and Joseph looking back at Ali. There was no footage of all the other attempts the police had made and there wasn't much footage of the 300 supposed people chanting for the man to jump. On top of all this, Ali looked like he was camera ready as if he had just left a red carpet with a tailored expensive suit. Joseph looked like he was out of central casting for a homeless man with winter gloves, ripped jeans, and a hooded sweater. But then again, so what, I thought. Ali dresses well and a homeless guy doesn't. To be clear, if this were to be the case, I'm not claiming that Ali was using Joseph. Joseph would, I think, have to be in on it. What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, and less time-consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidate. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best matches possible. That is why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified candidate with immediate results. 
And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. So I tracked down the man who took the photo, that perfect photo, Boris Yarrow. Boris had a prolific career capturing immigrants in poverty, capturing the evil of the KKK. Incredibly, he's also the man responsible for taking the photo in the moments after RFK was shot. I asked him about this Ali photo that he famously took. When I got it back to the office, processed film, and I was looking think myself awfully fortunate that the hole in the wall uh, was too fortuitous and uh, the same business I was in and you have to have healthy skepticism of the world around you and I certainly did that. Boris makes a point that I hadn't thought of. When looking at the photo, it's not just well-framed and easy to see both Joseph and Ali, but Joseph is standing on a side of the building with no wall. You can see his entire body. He's impossible to miss. Unless I was really missing something, it became clear that this whole thing seemed made up. It was all perfectly set up, Ocean's Eleven, Ali style. I'm not saying it was shot on a Hollywood lot, although LA does have plenty of those as well, but Ali knew, and he was right, the news that this would attract. The champ saving a guy from committing suicide? Showing up in a Rolls Royce and doing so in L.A. where there'd be cameras galore? And even if there weren't cameras, Ali's best friend just happened to be there? A friend that had traveled the world with Ali taking photos? Who was perhaps just backup in the event Boris or another photographer didn't make it there in time? And while speaking of time, maybe there's also a reason it took nearly three hours for Ali to get that call. Surely that'd be enough time for a few cameras and photographers to show up. And then, it just so happens that Ali wasn't only in L.A., but only four minutes away. He got there in four minutes. Has anyone ever gotten anywhere in L.A. in four minutes? But what was the point? I still can't believe it was just to get in the way of some Ronald Reagan inauguration coverage. So I took another step back to try and make my way forward. Did Ali have a history of this? A history of maybe not necessarily setting things up, but retelling the past in ways that weren't accurate. Ali won the gold medal in the 1960 Olympics. He wore the medal everywhere he went, proud to show off the unbelievable achievement. After all, he was only 18 years old. While in his hometown one day in Louisville, Kentucky, with the medal around his neck, Ali walked into a whites-only restaurant. He was told, according to Ali in his autobiography, we don't serve certain type of people here. Ali responded, that's okay, I don't eat them. He was thrown out. Ali then walked to a nearby bridge and threw the medal into the Ohio River. He couldn't believe that in America, even with a gold medal, he was still a second-class citizen. That's the, the legend. This is New York Times best-selling author Jonathan Eig, who most recently wrote Ali, A Life. And that's the story that appears in his autobiography, but as soon as the book was published, he was asked about that, and he admitted that he had not read his own book and <laughs> said that that wasn't true, um, that, that he never threw the, the medal into the, into, the, into the river. And then he, over the years, changed his story. Sometimes he said he did throw the medal in the river, and sometimes he said he didn't. 
you know, he thought that, that it was a good story because it, it talked about racism and he was um, he was very interested in in fighting racism. So I don't think he minded and he wasn't going to let, a, you know, a few little details or worry too much about whether it, whether it happened or not. You know, he was. Um, uh, he was um, he was very much in, in, enjoyed, you know, creating his own myths, his own legends, and and uh, this would have been just another piece of that, I think. His own myths, his own legends. At this point, I was so invested, I tried calling people from Ali's camp, but heard nothing back. Did they know I was onto something? I don't think so. In fairness, they're probably busy, and I'm sure a million requests are coming in every day. So I opted to try and track down the man who had threatened to commit suicide, Joseph. What did I find? Well, in short, nothing. And I certainly tried. At first, I had problems even finding his last name, which was, if anything, reassuring as nobody should be publishing the last name of a man trying to commit suicide. And if he indeed was, I'll follow that lead. I called up a private investigator who found eight Josephs with that same last name, along with four emails and eight actual addresses. I sent a fairly benign request to speak with Joseph. Nothing on the record, nothing for anything, just a chat from a curious guy, but no response. All the emails bounced back and no response from the letters. Additionally, nothing on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, you name it. I checked in with Ali's camp, but never heard back. I also tried Ali's friend who was there that day, Howard Bingham. I got a hold of his home and cell line, left voicemails saying I was a documentary filmmaker, wanted to ask him some questions about life, not even mentioning the incident, but nothing. During the search, both Ali and Bingham passed away. There's been hundreds of follow-up stories, but nothing that is actually new. Nothing that is actually news. So I took another step back. I began reading up on where Ali was at this point in his career, in 1981, and I found something that shifted the narrative of this entire story. In October 1980, Ali was badly beaten by Larry Holmes. It was later revealed that before the bout, The Mayo Clinic had found that Ali had mild ataxic dysarthria, a problem using the muscles required to coordinate speaking, and that he even had trouble conducting a basic finger-to-nose coordination test. Even Holmes, knowing that he had embarrassed and contributed to Ali's deteriorating health, cried after the win. Hard to believe that he took the fight in the first place. Said Ferdy Pacheco, a longtime boxing journalist, this fight was an abomination, a crime. Afterwards, both Ali's longtime doctor and promoter said they could no longer represent Ali. His injuries, and specifically brain injuries, were too dangerous to continue. But after the loss, Ali showed no interest in stopping. Quote after quote shows he was ready to go again and wouldn't take no for an answer. Biographers say it was about the money and the spotlight. But no was all he would hear. Most states thought it would be too dangerous after the revelations about Ali's health. Nevada, the preeminent state to fight, found a roundabout way to disallow Ali from fighting. So did Hawaii, which at any other point in Ali's career would have done just about anything to book Ali. Nobody wanted to be responsible for the deterioration or even death of the greatest that ever lived. Once again, Dave Hannigan, one of Ali's biographers. Can you just walk us through what happens with uh, BBC Radio and those interviews? He's in England, and he records two things for the BBC. 
Okay, he records two other interviews for the BBC. In the first, he recites a poem, and um, which he mocks Larry Holmes. It's a standard alley kind of shtick, uh, but it's a standard alley shtick. Except this time, his listeners struggle to make out what he's saying. And after that, in the second interview, his speech is so slurred that the BBC decide not to broadcast the interview. And then there's a, a very, very telling comment. And remember, this is December 1980, or sorry, maybe early January 1981. This is the BBC's official statement. It was very sad that so much of what history's greatest fighter said was unintelligible. Ali was being called unintelligible. Can you imagine? Said Ali's biographer, Jonathan Eig. Yeah, if you watch um, his interviews over the years, you can see how much his speech is slowing down and you can hear him slurring words. I mean, he was so quick with his tongue and so eloquent. And now all of a sudden to see him... You know, in, in, he's only you know 35 years old, slurring his words and having a hard time um, being understood. That was just tragic, I think. On January 17th, two days before he went up those nine floors to save Joseph, Ali said the following to the Associated Press, quote, I'm now just doing this for spite. I'm at war with the factors in boxing that want me to quit. I'm fighting them. I'm going to show them that I'm too big to stop. Ali said it himself. He was willing to do anything. And can you blame him? The world's greatest was now considered unintelligible. And he wasn't just a once-in-a-generation trash talker and poet. The man had recorded two spoken word albums and a rhythm and blues song. He received two Grammy nominations. What could be more offensive, other than questioning his boxing skills, than an assault, however fair, on his ability to articulate? Worse, it was this charge that was making it impossible for him to box again. After all, if he had trouble speaking, how could he be taking hits to the head as a boxer? So what could the champ do to show the boxing community, sports fans, and truly the world that this notion he was losing his ability to speak was false? What would be the one way to let the world know that everyone had it wrong? Well, talking a man out of committing suicide sure would do it. Ali's camp, almost instantly, after Ali and Joe went into that Rolls Royce, seemed to capitalize on this heroic event. One of Ali's promoters, towards the end of his career, who was also there that day in L.A., Joseph Cornelius, said right after the incident, and this really I, I couldn't believe when I read it, quote, I'm awed how quickly and effectively Ali gained the confidence of that man. I've read stories and seen pictures of people being coaxed not to take their own lives, but even in the movies, the ask is wrenching and time-consuming, but for the champ, plucking Joe back into reality seemed effortless. He approached the task with the same air and confidence with which he did in the ring, unquote. Cornelius is suggesting that he's seen many incidents in photos or movies or articles of people being talked out of suicide, which to me seems like a really strange expertise, really strange. He also seems to have a quote ready once the incident was over and suggesting that what Ali had effortlessly done on that ninth floor was justification for more fights. If this was all set up, Cornelius was clearly in on it. And it wasn't the first time he was in on something deceptive. In 1975, he had pleaded guilty to five counts of theft, paid 23 grand to people and banks that he owed, and in 1980 had the FBI investigating him for further fraud. Ali had been backed into a corner and needed to sort out a way, whatever it took, to be given permission to get back in the ring. But it seems like even this triumph didn't really work. 
there wasn't a state that would allow him to box again. And his last fight would end up being about a year later in the Bahamas, where he lost to an unknown fighter in a Bush League ballpark where the ring was built over second base. But maybe for Ali, this had more to do with just getting back in the ring. Maybe he wanted to demonstrate the horror and impact of war. It had been about 10 years since the first time nobody would grant Ali a fight when he refused to go to Vietnam. And when Joseph was on that ledge, he wasn't just yelling, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump. No, he was on that ledge claiming that the Viet Cong were after him. Joseph was a Vietnam vet. But in doing the math, I realized that this doesn't add up. Joseph was 22 years old at the time. It was 1981. It was nearly impossible he could have been a vet. The LA Times corrected this only a few days after the event. Even the tabloid magazine that broke the story that a 3,000-year-old mummy was pregnant, they got it right. Records show that he, in fact, never was in Vietnam. Yet, years later, long after it was clear that he wasn't there, Howard Bingham, the friend that Ali called that day, continued the narrative, saying... Joseph had said to Ali on that day that I spent years alone after returning from Vietnam. I became convinced that nobody cares whether I live or die, so I decided I would die. But you changed that for me. You have given me the strength to carry on. Howard was sticking to the story that this was a Vietnam vet. Why did it matter? So maybe you've considered a sleep number bed, but you thought you couldn't afford one. But you can't really afford another restless night's sleep, can you? So before you do anything, you've got to go to a sleep number store and experience the adjustable comfort of a sleep number bed. The sleep number bed lets you choose your ideal comfort and support on each side. It's a perfect bed for couples. Their newest beds are really smart. They actually sense your every move and automatically adjust. So you stay sleeping comfortably throughout the night. They even have an adjustment for snoring. Does your bed now do that? Sleep number beds cost about the same as traditional mattresses, last twice as long, and 91% of owners recommend. Best of all, right now, queen mattresses start at only $899.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at any one of the 550 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com to find the store near you, and be sure to tell them what really happened sent you. If Joseph was a vet, then clearly Vietnam did him no good. He was standing up there, shouting, wanting to commit suicide. What greater proof of a war gone horrifically wrong? And then the American people, many of whom hated those that didn't go to Vietnam, like Ali, were making it worse. They were calling for this man to jump. And remember, the LAPD officer who was there that day who said he'd never seen such a bloodthirsty crowd. But then insert Ali, he arrives, saves the Vietnam vet, and the draft dodger himself, Muhammad Ali, with Joseph around his arms, leaves the building. What was the crowd chanting now? I would have thought some version of Ali, 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 but no, it was USA, USA. Of all the things to chant, USA. So Muhammad Ali, the man who started his career as an American Olympian, arriving back in Kentucky with chance of USA, and then loses everything after refusing to go to war, was now creating the opposite. The crowd was chanting USA for a draft dodger that had just helped a guy who had gone to Vietnam. And for anyone who has been to a sports game or large event, it only takes a few people to start a chant. 
And we already know two of Ali's accomplices, Howard Bingham and James Cornelius, were in that crowd. There are also reports of a third, Norman Thrasher. With all this adding up to suggest it was a staged event, there was still one phone call I could make and for some reason had sat on. Maybe I didn't want this story to end, or maybe I didn't want to bother a busy group of people. Maybe I didn't want to get law enforcement involved, but I had to. I wanted to speak with the person who had to write that police report. After repeated phone calls, I finally got a call back from Sergeant Bruce Haggerty, the LAPD officer who was there on the scene that day. We tried everything. We sent officers up there. We had a team of specialists uh, try to talk to them. Nothing, nothing was working. Not, none of our, none of our tools were working. Now there's a crowd of two, three hundred people uh, on the street that you know we had to control them and keep them away from the building. But they're still within sight of the guy up there, and there are people in the uh, crowd literally uh, telling the guy to jump. And out of nowhere, this guy, you know, we see this. Uh, it was like a black r- rules. Rolls Royce, I think it was. Mm-hmm. It pulls up, and, and the driver gets out, and he says that he's Muhammad Ali's driver, and, and uh, would I allow uh, Ali to come in and talk to me? And so I said, sure. You know, you're you're kind of out of aces, so let's let's see where this is going to go, type of thing. And what are you thinking in your head in that in that moment? I'm, I'm thinking I got nothing. You know, mm-hmm. I got nothing else. We're trying everything. We shook hands and. Uh, uh, he asked if he could go up uh, and uh, talk to him. And I said, okay, uh, we're, we can do this, but there's some ground rules and and, and uh, rules of engagement, if you will, and you, you need to follow those. And if, if you don't follow them, then I'll have the officers pull you out. Because uh, you, you don't want a person to go in there and rush the guy and try to grab him and, you know, stuff like that. So, mm-hmm. we, you know, we told him you can't try to touch him you can't you know all you can do is talk to him he was escorted by officers uh up to where the man was so th- then they uh bring ali back to the uh command post and and he asked for one more favor he says uh i promised uh the man Joseph. that he could uh be taken to the police station in my car well that's in pretty- his rolls royce in his rolls royce yeah mm. So that's that's a pretty unusual thing. We don't normally do things like that. Uh, but I said, okay, but the rule is he has to go. He's still handcuffed. He, he has to go with a uniformed officer in the car and you. And uh, so he agreed to that and uh, took him to the police station. And I just turned him over to the officers that, that had him in custody. And uh, they make... Uh, they make whatever decisions they need to make. And then I went back into the field and you know, went to the to the next event type of thing. As did everyone else, it seems. The postscript has hardly been reported. That ending of them driving off in the Rolls Royce is too good to be true. And so why not leave it at that? Sergeant Haggerty said that although my story about this potentially all being made up was compelling, it was hard for him to believe. So I asked Haggerty, just for the sake of it, as I had come this far, if... He could pull up the police records and see what he had written. Not a problem, I'll call you back, he said. So a few days later, when he called, he said something happened that didn't totally shock me. He couldn't find the records. And in fairness to Bruce, it had happened 34 years ago, and, well, over the years, things get lost. 
He also had a fine reputation. He went on to become a commander in the LAPD and then the chief of police in Chico. I'm not one to start believing in larger conspiracy theories, and I do think they were just misplaced. In fact, Bruce encouraged me to not give up, and I should contact the records retention unit at the LAPD. Surely they'd have it. I called, they said they'd look, and sure enough, a few days later, they called back. They said they couldn't find anything. But what happened after all of this? Ali apparently talked about Joseph during a press conference for a soda he was endorsing, but there isn't any reason to believe they did in fact stay in touch. Actually, the only real reporting is that a few months after Joseph threatened to commit suicide, an article came out that Joseph had attempted suicide again. But the reporting on this attempt is inconsistent. In fact, the report says that it is believed to be the same Joseph from that day in Los Angeles. No proof that it actually was. And again, no police record. Now, if it weren't for one gaping hole, I'd be convinced that this was an elaborate setup. And that gaping hole is that a man with Joseph's last name reappeared not just once in the months after all this, but a second time a few years ago. The report shows up in a California newspaper and is about a Joseph with the same last name, a Joseph that would be the same age as the one that Ali saved. I followed up by calling the company where the article said this Joseph worked, but nobody knew of him. Regardless, these reports make me think Joseph wasn't acting up there or in on the scheme, but instead mentally unwell. And I also don't believe that Ali would take advantage of somebody who was. My opinion? Well, my gut says it happened as I first read in that tweet, Ali saved this man. But I want to be quick to say it's easy to believe that it was staged and for many reasons that rely on facts. Ali taking four minutes to get there. Ali's camp continuing to talk about Joseph being a Vietnam vet in the hours and years after it happened. Ali's ability and enjoyment in telling a good story. In fact, it's actually these smaller details than the larger pieces of the story that I find striking. The larger narratives of this story, if it was set up, make me admire Ali even more. Was this about showing the world he could still talk, much less box? Yes. But he opted to provide social commentary on the effects of war, and particularly Vietnam, while doing so. And maybe, just for some icing on the cake, he pulled this off on the day before Reagan's inauguration. A nice little jab he landed, just as the great communicator became president. What I really learned in this process is that Muhammad Ali was nothing short of an angelic presence. He had a once-in-a-generation mind and athletic ability. He is identified as a boxer, but that really was only his microphone. Ali's friend, President Bill Clinton, said it this way at his funeral. For the longest time, in spite of all the wonderful things that have been said here, he never got credit for being as smart as he was. Clinton added, I think he decided very young to write his own life story. In the end, nothing from Ali's people, nothing from Joe, nothing from the LAPD, and nothing substantial from reporters, not even Ali's biographers. Nothing about perhaps the most famous man of all time saving somebody's life. How is that possible? If Ali did in fact create this entire scene, it's something that, and I, I really mean this, it's something that only the world's greatest could pull off. I remain unsure. And so I'd like to ask you, what really happened?
So there's a good chance someone out there knows more than I do about what really happened, and I'd love to hear from you. So we'll give you two ways to do it. First, you can call in and leave a voicemail, 347-674-6980, or go to our website, jankspod.com. If you've got some real evidence or a solid theory, there's a good chance it's in a future episode. Again, the number is 347-674-6980, or go to jankspod.com. Also, be sure to follow me on Twitter, at Andrew Jenks. What Really Happened is produced by Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, Seven Bucks Productions, in association with Cadence 13 Studios. Next week's episode, Chris Christie and Bridgegate a scandal that took place on the biggest bridge in the United States and with a wide range of characters that the best scriptwriter couldn't come up with. The Ghost, Wally Edge, The Road Warrior, Phony Baloney, and Big Boy. You want to have the conversation later? I'm happy to have it, buddy. But until that time, sit down and shut up. Although both Rachel Maddow and Rush Limbaugh ended up agreeing on their distaste for the governor, which is when you know you're really in trouble, the last chapter to the story will finally be told.